Hello, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Slaves to the Algo. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI big data company, podcaster, and host of Slaves to the Algo. Slaves to the Algo is my attempt to demystify the age of data and the algorithm, sharing my learnings and those of other leading professionals to understand how they are using or being used by data and algorithms in both their personal and their professional lives. And in Slaves to the Algo, we don't attempt to say that the future is either dystopian or utopian, the data is good or bad. It merely seeks to bring alive the use of data and algorithms more into our conscious thinking selves. At Crayon, we are particularly inspired by the life stories and professional achievements of women who chose to break the bias. The tech industry has been notoriously challenged when it comes to women representation. And in 2020, a study found that women make up only 28.8% of the tech workforce. It's been increasing steadily, but at this pace, it's going to take a long time before women hold up half of the tech world like they do in the real world. So we do need role models. And in recognition of that, for the last few episodes, we've been featuring a series of women leaders in technology and data, people who are reinventing the technology landscape as we speak. And today, I'm particularly thrilled to welcome a transformation designer, a mobile tech entrepreneur, an expert in education, a global speaker, Soyoung Kang, onto the show. Welcome, Soyoung. Thank you so much, Suresh. It's such a joy to be here. Love what you guys are doing. Data is so important. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, a short introduction to Soyoung. Soyoung is a pioneer, a serial entrepreneur. She's constantly trying to reinvent herself and the world. Her latest challenge is focused on how to maximize human potential and reach billions. She's the founder of Nobi, which is disrupting the future of talent and work through a mobile-first micro-learning environment. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, this is spun out. Nobi is a spin-off from our first company, The Awaken Group. It's a transformation design firm. Uh, but Soyang has done so much more. She was nominated to be a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. She's founded the Young Professionals Group, uh, a nonprofit dedicated to helping students achieve their professional. She sits on multiple boards. Uh, and very interestingly, and we'll talk about that also a little bit later in the show, a Korean American who's like, you know, lives in uh, two countries and works out of two countries. Uh, so it's really a delight to have, um, you know, a multifaceted person on the show. And so let me jump straight into the, uh, the first thing I like to ask my guests, which is a slightly more personal question. Most of us actually use a lot of data and algorithms in our lives, not just people who are, you know, technologically proficient. And um, one of the things I say is, um, can we all share some examples of an algo or a piece of data that we've kind of come across that's impacted our personal lives, professionally or personally? And I'm not, I'm talking about going beyond the Netflix and the Amazon and all that. Something that you said, wow, that's cool. That really helped me. Or that's terrible. I mean, how do they get to know that about me? Any, any examples in your life? I mean, I think data is, is such a critical part of our day-to-day, -day, right? In terms of even how we engage with content, and how we shape our perspectives and views. Something I've been really passionate about lately is really the use of data to provide personalization um, and the pros and cons of that. So if you just take social media and your perspectives on major issues, obviously the algorithms are being tuned to my preferences and what I click on. And then all of a sudden I'm getting a whole news feed based on those preferences. Obviously that shapes my perspective and that either reinforces or challenges. And so um, in some ways, understanding the algorithms is I think is critical to then forming kind of a narrative of what 
how biased do I want to be or what biases do I want to have? So, um, you know, so I've been messing up the algorithms by changing and clicking on all kinds of strange things to get a much more diverse um, perspective in my news feeds. And so, you know, these are really small examples, but they're really, really major things that are shaping the way we think and perceive the world. And, and yet, you know, it's, it's fascinating that you say that you are trying to influence the algorithm by going and clicking on crazy things. But for an average person, the algorithm is actually shaping the way they think because they're doing it unconsciously. And I think that's one of the biases that we talk about uh, in the show, which is um, how much are they messing with our lives or how much like you, are you messing with the algorithm? Uh, but, you know, I think I really want to come to your life story because such a fascinating thing, so young. I mean, you know, you were actually in, in, in strategy consulting and transformational work, and then you decided to create a difference in the learning space using technology. So what made you make that switch into, I mean, into both learning and into, I need a technologically enabled way of, of driving learning? Sure. I, it's a great question. I mean, you, you know my background, right? Because <laughs> we, we've, we've we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, and I think when you're in consulting, you know, in advisory, whether it's McKinsey or whether it's at Awaken, um, I think the impact is deep. You know, you spend a lot of time and, um, you know, with your, with people and with your clients going really deep in solving their problems. And there's, there's a joy, you know, and a, and a really deep purpose and meaning in doing that. But it's really difficult to scale, right? <laughs> it's difficult to scale. Uh, to scale um, deep kind of consulting and advisory work. And so the whole idea of mobile, and I share this story, is I'm not particularly, um, you know, in love with mobile phones <laughs> or anything, but there are at latest count five to six billion, if I'm not wrong, smartphones in the world. So yep. there is going to be a technology device that is going to help us scale and improve human potential and reach, you know, so many people today um, it's a mobile phone. And so that was the reason why, you know, we, we leveraged that particular modality, if you will, as a vehicle for delivering impact. Now, in terms of learning um, and improvement and just maximization of human potential, um, it was a little bit shocking that there are not a lot of tools designed for true learning experience in community, which is how we learn. Yep. Most of the platforms are really good at content delivery of learning content. True. And those are very different things. So, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, we like to solve problems. I was really shocked that this problem was not solved, that they were not better tools for learning. And so that was why we created Nobi, which is a creator tool for trainers and for content creators to design better learning experiences. And you've done it in a particularly interesting way, right? I mean, you know, you've tried to say, hey, listen, how do I take this whole face-to-face -face interaction, which is how training was always done. And you made it, you've designed the courses in a way that it kind of, it's almost like it's face-to-face. -face. Could you walk us through that? Sure. Um, so, so I think learning and the way that humans learn um, is a combination of things. It's really quite simple. You know, someone catalyzes and gives us a knowledge catalyst. That's a piece of content, an idea that could be a, a video, an article, etc. And that's the beginning of learning. Once we have that, we then need to dialogue and discuss and think about it. And then we apply it, obviously. And if we apply that, that becomes part of our knowledge base. And so you can apply those same principles face to face or in an asynchronous um, you know, digital environment or in a blended environment. 
So we just took the same philosophies. Um, I'm also an educator, so I used to teach um, many, many years ago. And in some weird ways, I've been teaching you know, my whole life, actually. And so um, even though I wasn't ever, it wasn't a formal teacher, you know, I've been teaching and training for my whole life. And so you, you take those same principles and the technology was designed to mimic the human experience. So because of that, um, the, the majority use case of Novi by trainers, educators, leaders is for blended experiences. They use it to as a digital companion to their face-to-face mm-hmm. experiences. Um, okay. And then we also have people then who take that and then also do it in kind of a standalone um, asynchronous environment for scale. So the, the breadth and depth of how people are using it has, has been mind-blowing to me. Um, because it's not just about self-directed online learning. There's definitely that component as well. And the reason why we're able to do it is we just take the human experience of what a facilitator, let's say for me, you know, what I would say at the beginning of a workshop, I just put that into Nobi. If I want to give a word of encouragement, I put the word of encouragement. I, re- I pre-design it. I want to do a personalization, say, hey, Suresh, well done. Great job. Then I put that into Nobi, right? I personalize that. I share a video. After the video, I say, what are your three takeaways from that video? I just embed that into the into Nobi. So I Nobi was designed literally to take the things that I would do as a human facilitator, and I just put that in. Whether it's a training program or whether it's an onboarding program, whether it's product training, no matter what the context is, it's mimicking me, the leader, um, or the, the, the speaker or the content communicator. And then the technology is just supporting me in that journey. You know, you said it so much better than anything that I've ever heard say about when you said it's mimicking me and you're putting all of that into Nobi. And it's fascinating because uh, what I'm taking away from this is um, we're all actually walking, talking producers of video by just the way we live, video, audio, training experiences. We're trying to pass that knowledge on. And what you're saying is, why don't I just capture that and put it into something that's asynchronous? I mean, it's such a powerful, compelling thought. Uh, and, you know, but, but there are two things that I think I always found fascinating about your Nobi thing. One is you talked about mobile and the second you talk about micro learning. And in one of the interviews, one of the fascinating things that I heard you say is that we've been doing micro learning for thousands of years. I mean, there's a tendency in tech, of course, to believe that we created everything. But oh, yeah, I just sure. want you to delve into this. What, how, what is micro learning and how is it something that, um, that you've been kind of bringing to people through the mobile? Yeah, interesting. So um, have you heard of top-down communication or executive summaries? Yeah. Right? Twitter. We all <laughs> learned on Minto. <laughs> right? Twitter, Cliff Notes. Okay. So these are things, and for those of you who are older who don't who know what Cliff Notes are, right? Uh, back in high school. Um, so we've been doing summarize because the human brain can't actually consume so much information. So we communicate in ways, we summarize, we synthesize, we bullet point, we do things to help with understanding and retention. Mm-hmm. Now, I would challenge everyone, even on watching your podcast, right? To time how long it takes you to make a point and how long it takes me to make a point. Uh, I would guess that you're better than me, but uh, in general, I would say a lot of people can go on for about 30 to 45 seconds without getting to the point. That no, so on average, right? It will be less about a minute or less than a minute. If it's more than a minute, you know, we might feel that they're dragging on. 
unless they're super compelling and amazing, right? But, it, but in general, in general, right? So the way humans communicate is in bite-sized pieces. That's interesting. And you're saying the bite-sized piece is a minute at best at which point of time the human mind stops to listen. Is that, is that dropping? Is that minute dropping given that the world is coming in shorter and shorter attention spans, especially with the mobile? Um, there are... There are lots of research that talk about attention spans dropping. So there is research that says now attention spans are nine seconds in terms of focus. Um, I don't fully think that that should be applied to every context because in a conversation, I don't see human behavior now speaking in shorter sentences. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know if that observation is universally applicable. I do think um, an observation of human behavior is that we have always, in some ways, communicated in short bite-sized pieces. And one of the other fascinating things about microlearning is that they talk about the fact that you know you can only talk about one or two topics in each unit, and it's um, you know it's one is the time, two is don't talk about too many things. Uh, and and my question is slightly different: Is microlearning does it help deep learning? Does it actually mitigate against deep learning when you try to make everything into a bite-sized unit? Then you know, you're know you also not going into the depth and the nuance of a topic. What's your experience on that? It's exactly the opposite. If you're going to, to teach a very complex topic, if you don't break it down into bite-sized pieces, good luck. Any complicated, um, and just take a complicated problem, for example. Um, you know, so, so, so one of the things, you know, that I learned at McKinsey is how do you take a really gnarly problem and you break it up into little bite-sized pieces. You have to break down that problem into its small component pieces, otherwise you can't solve it. So the idea of taking a gnarly topic and then being able to understand it, if a, a good teacher, a good facilitator will do a great job of breaking it down into these bite-sized pieces to help people understand that concept. It's the way that humans actually process information and learn. You can't take a complex topic and just put it into an eight hour day and talk at people and expect them to hire high retention. That is actually not based on learning science, neuroscience or design. It, it's just not effective, um, which is um, in some ways a, uh, a misunderstanding of how the human brain works. And you know the things we're talking about are related to the way that brains work, the way it, it's the neuroscience of learning, there's the behavior design component of it, um, but there are there's decades of research around how humans learn and, um, and, and maximize our potential. And it's, it's not through long form, uh, one-way communication. That is not considered best practice, that's actually, efficient that was designed for efficiency that was not designed for effectiveness it's very interesting i've had people on my podcast we do a long-form podcast since we talked about it right we spend about 25 35 minutes to try to go into some depth and i've actually had people on my podcast talk about how even this is now two or three different kinds of podcasts they talk about the snack the slightly more like you know literally like a 30 second bite and then they talk about the long form and um one of the views is somebody whom I talked to who's an expert in the way podcasts, which is also a form of micro learning, if you will. Yeah, sure. He said it's uh, it's different uh, uh, strokes for different folks, and it's very different for different types of topics. So, and you're a podcaster yourself. So, how does micro learning work with the podcast environment? I'd love to learn. Well, I mean, that's why I think the idea of micro learning is, um, in, in some ways, I don't even talk that much about micro learning anymore because even in this podcast, 
it's actually small bites. You're, you, you are speaking for about 30 to 45 seconds. I'm speaking for 30 to 45 seconds. And we're going back and forth and we're having a dialogue, uh, which makes this much more interesting as a format. And we're making different points. Now, it, you, you string all that together into a 30 to 45 minute podcast. And the truth is people will take away, if we're lucky, three points. But most will probably remember one or two, if we're lucky, right? And other people will say that was really entertaining and go on with their lives. Um, I'm sure not with your podcast, but, you know, in general. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but, but the whole idea is, but unless they apply that thing, that, that principle, that thing they learned after this podcast and think about a really practical thing they're going to do to apply, they probably will forget about it. And, and how does something like Nobi, I mean, not just Nobi, but I think your whole experience in that, right? I had, I had a guy called David Trial on the show. He runs a knowledge company using AI. He was telling me how in, in edX, of course, there's a 3% completion rate. 97% of people join these online courses. They don't even do that. Now, when you contrast that with the kind of thing that you're trying to do in Nobi, what's the difference and, and, and oh, how, he, is this, yeah, how is this geared to make people learn better, learn more? Yeah, and it's not just learning. So I, I think um, Nobi started off obviously very heavy in the learning space. You know, we're really more in the engagement communication space now, right? Because the tool, the creator tool is so easy that anyone can create any kind of content, which can be uh, for engaging your team, sales enablement, right? So learning is now just a component, right, of the overall thing. And, you know, and arguably when you onboard a company and onboard a new employee, um, they're learning about the company, right? So even onboarding is a learning experience. So let's broaden the definition, right? So, so if you kind of take that context of what people are doing, um, the, the other platforms I mentioned were not, um, and I'm not going to talk about the other ones. I'll just talk about our, our engagement. Our engagement is about 70 to 80% or 60 to 80% um, pretty consistently. And the reason for that is not because, you know, we're these geniuses, right? Um, it's because we just understand science and research. And so the science and research of how humans engage is through kind of multimodal, we're interesting people, we get bored easily, right? So behavior design, gamification principles and neuroscience of learning of how we create neural connections, we just apply that science to the technology. So you don't have to know all of this nerdy stuff. You know, um, all you have to do is when you use Nobi software, you just like, oh, it's so easy, click, click, click. So we're democratizing the creation of these experiences so that you don't have to have a master's in education or instructional design. You can just click, 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 and you're like, oh, and create a much better experience without even knowing why. But the why is because of the science and research that underlies the technology. And, I um, love the way I love the way Soyoung said. We're not geniuses. We just use science and research, which is probably one of the foundations of being a genius. But just that's <laughs> a light enough. But just to get just a little bit deeper in your experience, you know, you talked about a sixty-two percent engagement rate that that happens. Is it the length of the content? Are you seeing that between the quality of the content? Is the connection between the person making the content and the viewer? What's the driving factor out here? What's the data showing? The creator. Hmm the creator. So you take any class you've ever taken in your life and you take the best professor, the best learning experience you've ever had. I it's usually not to do with the content or the topic the person was speaking about, but the way they delivered that course that made you go, wow, he's an awesome, she's an awesome professor. 
having attended the founders coaching course i can testify to that with you uh, but <laughs> you're right. i think i think it's that's very interesting if if it is that then you know how you know and if the power of the course and the engagement depends upon the speaker how the are you the delivery okay and does something like this how do you actually help people become or use data to help people become better at delivery how can you tell people listen you're a content creator do six things and you know you'll be a better communicator yeah no, and it, it's exact. That's exactly the science, um, and I would say that's what we've created in Obi: the tools to allow the communicator or the content creator to basically learn and, and to by trying the tech, because the tech is designed in such a way that you really have to be very intentional to design it in a very linear, like way, in a boring way, like you know, because curiosity will make you check different things and try different things. And Obi was designed in a social experience. So you, you are guided, if you will, to design something that will be a little bit more engaging, a little bit more interesting, right? And so the, the whole authoring tool, it's kind of like Canva. You know, Canva yep. is, is, you know, I don't have to, I'm not a graphic designer, right? Um, but I can use Canva and create pretty good stuff. Is it going to be as amazing as my graphic design team? Absolutely not. But it'll be pretty cool, you know, and I don't yep. have a master's in design, right? Similar in Nobi, um, you don't have to be a master instructional designer, but anyone can use Nobi's tools to create something that's pretty darn good. And, um, and so that's the whole idea is to take the, to, to demystify, to democratize that whole creation process. And in terms of data, that's extremely important. And this is where technology actually is much and data become even more powerful than face-to-face. -face. So when I'm face-to-face um, -face and I'm facilitating, uh, which I love to do, I'm really relying on <clears throat> my understanding of nonverbals. And I'm just kind of observing the group, who's engaged, who's not engaged. And just because some people are really good, right? They just look at you and they nod, but they're totally not engaged, right? They're, they're thinking about you know, what they're having for dinner that night. Right. And so, right. So as a facilitator in person, I have no idea really if someone is engaged. And I really also don't know if what I'm saying is going to have impact. And, you know, I want to have impact, right? I want to have the things that I'm sharing have impact in the lives of the people, but I have no idea and I have no data. So this is where Inobi, the data, you know, to the whole point of this podcast is so critical because with this data, I can now see oh, Suresh actually answered questions four, five, and six in this way. He skipped this whole part. Hmm, I wonder why he skipped it. Um, he paused here. You know, is, it, is the content not good? I can literally put in data field that go, hey, what did you think about? I was trying this new video. What did you think of it? One star rating or five. So I can literally get real-time feedback from participants based on their behavior, based on their actual direct engagement, or indirect engagement to then figure out how to design and improve my delivery. And you give this kind of feedback based on the engagement to the content creator so they can constantly improve the type. We don't of have to give it, it's all in the dashboard. They can access it themselves. And okay. in fact, the founders coaching pause that we have done, we use Nobi. And at the end of every day, probably unbeknownst to the participants, Roger Peng and I would sit um, um, and look at the dashboard in Obi and look at all the feedback that everyone was giving in the dashboard. And then that we would basically tweak and refine our delivery the next day. That's nice. Um, so moving on to another topic, I think, you know, one of the things that has also been an, another facet of your own journey has been your involvement in saying, 
we've got to do more for um, you know for young people, for people who are in you know less privileged things than people who can afford to go to like you know the top schools. And one of the things that you've done in Africa is to design um, this content for the Yes for Youth app. Eight thousand youngsters, you know, I think they're all spending you know something like seven or eight hours on the app, and like you know the engagement rate is eighty percent. So could you tell us a little bit about what got you into doing something like that, and and sure. where that kind of a program is going? It's actually more than forty thousand now. Okay, <laughs> so wow. Since we did the video, um, it's forty thousand, and um, and we really can't take credit for that. So that's yes for youth, the organization. Um, yes for youth, um, and the former CEO now Taz. She is super inspiring uh, lady, and she was looking for a platform um, and a mobile app to help unemployed youth in South Africa, given that we're very very high unemployment rates. In fact, um, you know, the former president, you know, all involved with this initiative because it's a huge problem, right, in South Africa. And so they were looking for kind of not just kind of micro content. So it's, that's why I, I kind of don't talk so much about micro learning only anymore, because it's not just about the content being short. Just because you take a 60 minute video and you break it up into 61 minute bites, it doesn't make it more effective, right? Because, you know, it just doesn't. So it's the instructional design part of it. Um, that's married with micro learning that becomes really important. And so mm -hmm. anyway, so they took that and um, they basically created a whole works, workforce development and preparation of jobs for these unemployed youth. They designed the curriculum, they designed the program and you know, Nobi is just a software that delivers that. But they couldn't find a software that was delivering very interactive, impactful experiences. That's why what would happen in the old and prior to Nobi is they would have these people train on just on micro learning on phones and then it would just drop off. It would just drop off because engagement rates were low and they were not able to apply what they learned. So they would get their jobs and they would quit. One of the things that they found, which really honestly to this day, like, you know, if, you know, who knows the future of Nobi, right? But if this is one thing that I feel like so proud of that we did, um, they were lacking confidence. Okay, so if you think about this, Suresh, when you and I work and we make a mistake, what do we do? We learn, we're like, okay, cool. What did we I learn? learn? We go and ask people what happened out here. Sure. We go back, think about it ourselves. Yeah, no problem, right? And we're fine. Now you're an unemployed youth in South Africa who may never have had a job. You make a mistake on the job. They were quitting because they felt well, that they were, they, they were not capable, that they were not able to do the job, that they had failed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what they realized was that what was really needed was a mindset transformation and a shift and confidence building. So they embedded into their Nobi programs, confirmation and confidence building activities every single day, in addition to the skills. It wasn't just skills and knowledge. It was mindsets. It was confidence. It was like, tell us the three things you're good at. You know, tell us why you're awesome. You know, mm -hmm. and then take a picture of yourself, you know, like, you know, um, sharing something you're proud of. When you make a mistake, what happens, right? So they started to build in all of these things. So every day, these young people are going, going, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I can do it. If I make a mistake, it's okay. You know, I can ask for help. All these things that you and I take for granted. And um, as a result of that, they were able to place now 40,000 people in jobs and their retention rate at the job, right? Now forget the app, who cares about the app, right? 40,000 
um, getting jobs and staying in those jobs. That's wonderful. I mean, and would you say that this is a fairly universal thing that, you know, while this happened in South Africa and you talked about the lady who really drove this, but um, would you say that this is probably common across cultures? Because I can, I mean, as you're talking about it, I can see the problem is the same. A lot of young people, unemployed people without enough opportunity just don't have one, the skill, two, the confidence. Yes, it, it, it's, we hear this over and over again. When we, um, we, we do a lot of frontline training um, for service reps. And one of the things that we were surprised by is um, when we did a pre and post assessment on impact, the confidence would go up by over 50%. So when we did A-B testing, groups that use Nobi and ones that didn't use Nobi, the ones that use Nobi had 50% higher confidence to do their jobs better. That is significant impact. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's a really big yeah. uh, jump, you know, if Huge. you look at that. Yeah. And when you look at, and I, and I try to understand, obviously, you know, that's uh, um, part of our mission as a company, you know, Nobi's vision is to humanize the world. And um, Nobi stands for grow knowledge into being. So being is, is much deeper than just your knowledge, right? That's the whole design intention of the platform. Um, but the, the, and the reason why that's happening is because we've intentionally designed these opportunities for the human creator to design in those words of affirmation or to design in those interactive moments or the, the rewards, the recognition that humans need to feel encouraged. And it was intentionally designed, right? I talk a lot about humanizing technology and your design intention as the tech founder in the you know, uh, in the, the, the tech tools that you create and the products you create. And that's the perfect segue into the next topic that I want to talk about. And, you know, and in fact, if you really look at it, Nobi is, um, um, it's a tool, but it, you've tried to really encapsulate your own learnings into a piece of technology, everything that you've talked about, your own journey into this piece of technology and saying, I'll make it accessible to millions of people. And uh, one of the big themes that everybody's talking about is will AI, data, tech eventually replace human beings? And uh, I mean, I have my own thoughts about it, but this sounds like a fascinating journey. You've literally scaled yourself by replacing yourself with a piece of tech. So what's your take on this? I mean, is this going to be the future direction where everybody tries to say, I'm going to make myself a piece of tech or my job will get taken away because there's a piece of tech that can do what I do better at bigger scale? Yeah, I mean, and I think there's tons of data, right, around uh, around AI actually creating more jobs than taking away, um, and tech actually uh, net net positive on job creation. Um, I think there's always a role for humans, and um, obviously, with the companies whose vision is to humanize the world, I am not someone. <laughs> I think my position probably is given away by my by our company vision. I don't think that AI and tech are going to replace humans. Um, you still need a human designer, and so you still need the creator. All of us, you know, and I think what tech can do is automate pieces that can be automated so that it frees up the human to do the creative work that we need to design better experiences, to think about how am I going to, how are you going to deliver this podcast in a way that's going to impact millions of people around the world, right? So you can spend your energy thinking about the design of it versus the mechanics of, of the- you know, uh, That is so fascinating. And you know, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah, yeah. when I go to a company and tell them about how to use data and AI, the first thing you believe is that the person says, that's a model. You're telling me this is going up against 25 years of my experience and my intuition. And I literally say the same thing. Your imagination can never be substituted, but if the data and the hard work of this is done by something else, yes. you can free up your mind. 
But it seems that there is a bias against us as a human being in terms of accepting the data and worrying about it. I mean, you've done a lot of transformational work. What's your take on that? Um, change is hard, <laughs> but uh, but I would say that um, I, I think it's people have to try it to believe it. I think that's kind of my, you know, the, um, uh, it's, I think, because, you know, we're talking about an intellectual challenge. So if you try to convince them, hey, it's not going to replace you with snakes, and there's lots of articles, right? Unless they really feel it, because they feel in their, they feel in their being that they're going to be replaced. It's fear. There's fear of the unknown. And so I think by addressing the fear, one of the ways that we use, there's many ways, right, is getting people to just try. So we'll say, okay, why don't you download the app and try creating something? And to see, let's see if this is going to replace you. Then they start creating and we say, please put your personality into this creation of this program. What do you mean? Well, do you encourage people? Do you, um, do you make jokes? Put your jokes in there. And they're like, oh, really? Yes. So then they start to put their jokes in, right? And then I say, and look at the end product, that program. Is that something that a machine could do without your help? Without you guiding it and designing it? And then like, no, not really. They would do it, the machine would do it differently. The machine would do it in a very systematic kind of more clinical way. But you, the human creator, it's your personality. The way that you run this podcast, Suresh, is Suresh's flavor, you know, um, because it's, it's your podcast. So the way you design it, the way you, the, the, you orchestrate this cannot be easily replicated. The technology for sure can the way we do video and audio and, and video editing and all that stuff for sure. But the way you deliver it is gonna be unique to you. And so the technology, if it's designed to support you, then you can still maintain that kind of idea that I'm not going to be replaceable easily. And um, yeah, so I think that's that's, really that's, that's, that's that's a wonderful way to uh, talk about it. And you know, um, I think there's so much to talk about and I think I could do multiple episodes with you on this particular topic. but uh, like I said, because you're such a multifaceted person and I'm trying to capture all the aspects of you. Uh, your journey has also been very interesting because um, uh, you're, you're a professional, but you're a woman leader, you're an entrepreneur, you're Korean-American, you live in Singapore. And, um, you know, how do you kind of break the bias? And, you know, not break the bias only in a gender perspective, but I think from yeah. multiple perspectives, you, I'm sure you face this this whole thing. And um, I mean, there's a lot of fantastic books that I think Korean Americans have written, but you, you know, how do you actually do this? Like, and how have you actually breaking the, broken the bias in so many different aspects of what you do? Yeah. Well, I'll let you know when I've broken it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wouldn't say that I, yeah, but, but, um, but no, but I hear you. I, it's hard actually. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is uh, when I first became a tech entrepreneur, I had prior to that, shocking to most people, I had not experienced gender bias. So, um, and partially because of the schools that I went to, uh, the companies that I work for, I would walk in with my business card, you walk in with a McKinsey business card, or you walk in from, you know, Harvard or whatever school, right? You walk in with that and people treat you really well. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get uh, a lot of gender bias. They just listened to what I had to say. The moment I took off that hat and I put on my tech entrepreneur hat, all of a sudden I was, uh, the level of condescension that I experienced and bias was really like surprising to me as a not young entre entrepreneur of 
um, you know, a bias of, oh, like, oh, what a cute little tech idea. Or, um, and, and, and it wasn't done so blatantly, but the subtle kind of um, biases that I was experiencing on a regular basis was honestly shocking and saddening because there is a high level of unconscious bias by the questions we're asked, by the way people engage with us. Um, and so the starting point for many female um, tech entrepreneurs versus male is the assumption is the male tech entrepreneur is um, very engineering, right? Is very techy, um, usually white male, nerdy looking, right? Um, Indians count as well. You know, Indians can look nerdy too, right? So, um, um, and, uh, and I'm probably the biggest nerd, right? So, but I don't, maybe I don't look as nerdy because I don't know, um, because I have long hair. I don't know, maybe I wear earrings, you know? And I literally was told that by someone. By the way, I failed math, stats, and technology all the way <laughs> through school and college. So I'm not that stereotype, but I completely understand what you mean. And I think uh, what would be really interesting to you know all the listeners, and especially the women listeners, is some of those examples of conscious bias, if you're comfortable sharing them, sure. the unconscious bias that you face and how you overcome them. So I have a few recommendations as well. So one is there's an awesome book called Brotopia. And Brotopia um, was written off the Me Too movement, which by the way, still hasn't been resolved, right? But um, uh, it, it really starts to share why and how the, bro the Brotopia culture started. Um, I have a free program called um, How Do You Foster Gender Inclusive Environments in Nobi, which I'm happy to share, which is to help break unconscious bias. So here's just an example of things that women can do to equip, equip ourselves. First is to educate ourselves about how the unconscious bias shows up. So once you kind of understand that, then you can equip yourself for it. So one example is the type of questions that you might get asked as a tech founder. Um, if you, uh, as a female founder, usually you're having to prove yourself and why you are, uh, why you're tech or you're good enough to lead your company. And so you're constantly having to go back into history to defend the decisions you've made versus being much more forward oriented to your dreams and aspirations of how are you gonna reach a billion people and how you're gonna rock and change the world. And- So true. So I, can, I can almost imagine it as you're speaking it, right? I mean, there's an assumption that if you're a male guy and you're a Indian or whatever it is, or an engineer yes. that you can do all of this stuff. I mean, Yeah, so no, it's, it's very real, right? So then as a female, once I read these articles and I quit my, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting all those questions, right? So, um, so one, and I'm, I still haven't solved it. That's why I'll let you know if I ever do. Um, uh, I constantly get coached on this, even by you know one of my board advisors. She's a female, and she keeps giving me feedback. She's like, "You're being too female." I'm like, "Huh? What?" You know? <laughs> She's like, "You got to be bolder. Just you know, um, go aspirational. So, so redirect the conversation to your aspirations and what you're building and the future vision of your company, not just the past." Don't sit in the past. And I'm like, okay, you know, um, the other bias that, you know, that women have, and, and this is more communication style. I'm still working on this. So for all the, your viewers, uh, I have not nailed it, but I think I'm a little better today than I was before is um, in terms of the way we communicate. So when men ask questions, men may not answer the question and they'll answer the question they want to answer and move on. Absolutely true. Right. Women will be asked a direct question and we tend to feel the need to answer the question directly. And so, and if we don't, and if other women don't answer our questions, we get upset because we're looking for the actual answer to that question. 
And that now is it, such an interesting insight. It's very interesting, right? So now if you're trying to drive the narrative, the bias has already started because women tend to answer the question. So if an investor or someone is asking you the direct question, you have to answer the direct question. Whereas if you're a male, you're like, oh no, I have a narrative. I have a story that I want to tell. No matter what you answer, I'm going to direct the conversation this way. And, and, and what happens when women do that? Is there pushback? When women change the narrative and they answer a different question? I, I know, I think it actually works because I've tried it and it works. So if the, if the male is asking the question, they don't care, they're used to it. They're not necessarily looking for my exact answer anyway. But if the woman is asking the question, then it's a bit different. Then they might come back and say, hey, you didn't answer my question. Great, that is such an interesting insight. And you know, uh, you talked about this book, Brotopia, you called it. And you strongly recommend that all our viewers and listeners read that book. Yeah, totally. It, it helped me to understand the Silicon Valley bro culture and where it came from. It, I found and, it very fascinating. And, and, you, and you talked about your own little thing that you've done at Nobi, which helps people really bring this problem of gender inclusion and gender bias uh, into your conscious uh, thinking selves. Um, you know, we'll take that up and we'll post a link on that as well. Uh, and and it, that's, that's something I really wanted to ask you, right? I mean, and I'm asking you this from the other side of this stuff, right? I've actually seen sometimes women also discriminate against other women. Oh, you know, and I'm using a fairly common example that I have seen. You know, you see a 28-year-old, 30-year-old woman who's a top-class professional and someone is saying, hey, this person's going to take leave for like six months because, you know, she's going to go off. She's got married two years ago. She's going to go have a baby. I mean, you know, we see these kind of things all the time. And people think it, some people say it. Yeah. yeah. Right? And one of the things that I have done, and I'm genuinely asking you this question out of like, you know, a, a need to for you to instruct me, is I said, if I see a woman and a man and they're both equally capable, you should always pick the women, even if it's, there's a 5% <laughs> difference between, let's say, you know, in the capability and the woman is 5% less capable. That's also a bias. But how do people get about this? How do men cope in this world? So my question is not about the women. How do men actually address this issue? Oh, by the way, uh, my program is designed for men as well. Thank you. That's nice. Part of, the part of the problem is that many of these programs are designed for women. So I go to so many gender inclusion DEI events and I look around and I'm like, this is not an inclusive event. This is full of women. And what we really need are men um, and allies to be there at those meetings. So, so when you go to these events, these DEI events and gender inclusion events, when you look around, part of the problem is it's full of women. It's not inclusive and diverse, even in the people who are attending. So I think a good starting point would be to have half men and half women at these gender inclusive and diversity events, right? Because male allyship is extremely important. And so you need to have men understanding the cues and so that they can also help in that situation if the questions are being biased, right? So educating and equipping ourselves with things that we do unconsciously. The whole idea of unconscious bias is people are not doing it intentionally. Men and True. women, we're not doing it intentionally, but we're, if we're not aware, we will continue. And uh, we will go back and look at that stuff. But one of the things that I must uh, say my pet uh, gripe with all the women in Crayon is that they have a women's group and they don't let me into that group. I'm like, you're not practicing gender <laughs> diversity audition. Let me into this group. But, that, one, uh, that one, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, but it's it's it's, it's fascinating because I think um, uh, it is a hard thing. I think the people who are genuinely trying, um, uh, I mean, there are real issues out here that I think people, companies are trying to address about this whole thing. Um, I've had senior leaders complain to me, oh, I've been told you can only hire a woman because the ratio is X and that's a quota. And I'm like, uh, maybe it's not a quota. Maybe it's just like, you know, maybe there's been a quota for like, you know, a few decades or a few centuries and you're just correcting, right? So it, this is a, 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 an issue that, um, uh, is, is there any tips that you would give to professional men? One mm. or two tips that you can think about in this whole thing about how they could break the, their own unconscious bias. Get educated. Learn, like get there, there. Learn about read these books, take these programs. Learn about the experiences of women who are experiencing unconscious bias. Read the stories. I think by educating yourselves, it starts to then awaken kind of your consciousness about what's the possibilities. And I, I think you'd be shocked at some of the stories that you'll hear and things that every single day in a meeting, how a man, how a male and a female are treated in a meeting, different. What happens when a male speaks versus a female, the types of phrases we use unconsciously. And so as you read and educate yourself on all these things, then you'll catch, you start catching yourself. Oh my God, I just did it. I didn't realize it, right? So, you know, and no one is perfect. And so this is not meant to be a, oh my gosh, you're terrible, you know, men are terrible. No, not at all. I love men and, and men are super important and women do it to women as well. Just let's be clear. The unconscious bias is not just by men. It's by men and women who do it to ourselves and to each other unconsciously. <laughs> Right, so it's happening for both men and for women. So I would say get educated. There, there are enough books, programs out there to be a little bit more awakened to what's happening. And uh, thank you so much for that, Soyang. And for those of my viewers and listeners who are interested, uh, Novi actually has a free trial program on, on gender inclusion that you can download and go in and, and learn about this stuff that Soyang talks about. Uh, and so in, this is something that you offered for free, right? And, you know, you kind of let people come in and do it. Have there been lots of people and organizations who signed up? Have there been any inspirational stories that you can share of people calling and saying, oh, my God, to you or putting that on the app? Yeah, well, I think that there are people in different organizations and individuals who are taking it, right? And I think that the, the, the general feedback is really because I, I give little activities for you to do. And some of the activities I give you are to observe the next meeting you're having. So, um, and for men and for women, this is not just for women. And then I have you then start to share your reflections of what happened at that meeting, uh, arguably that meeting that has men and women in it, right? That are that not just uh, one gender, but multiple genders, right? In the meeting. And then you basically go and you observe the way that people are, um, how many times people get interrupted, for example, and all these things, which are very interesting. And so I think some of the insights that have come out of that are people saying, wow, I just never realized that that was happening, you know, that I was part of that, or that I'm basically contributing unconsciously to that. And so I think it's been an awakening experience um, for many who just never knew. And I, I, and I don't think it's bad intentions. Absolutely. I think most of the time you're absolutely right that it's um, unconsciousness that um, that I think uh, we need to fight against. In the moment it comes to the conscious, you are able to stop yourself from doing it. Uh, and so I'm going to come to the end of this. Like I said, we could keep talking for hours. And uh, But there's another aspect of and facet of your own life, which is um, 
uh, you know, you're a tech entrepreneur, you're into learning, you're a woman, but I think you've also been a leader and you've written a book about leaders and 12 leaders and the one, you know, what is the one quality as you observe leadership that sets apart or connects all these different leaders and, 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 and makes them just who they are. And maybe you could even tell us about the 12 leaders that you've written about in your book. The book is called Inside Out. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. That was a that was a research project gone wild. That's that's like my accidental book. <laughs> I I was trying to do a white paper on leadership and innovation, and I was too inspired um, to basically leave it into a white paper. So it just turned into a book. But um, I, I think the thing that really separates what I think are like great leaders, who I consider great leaders, and just leaders or people in positions of leadership, which I think are different, is purpose. Is purpose. I think when you find leaders who have a true sense of purpose and they're moving towards that purpose with a conviction and a passion and an energy, I think there's a lot, there's, there's um, I think a power in that mm -hmm. purpose. And, um, and, and of the leaders I've met who've really inspired me, you know, we're not, they're not perfect. You know, they've made mistakes. If you have not made a mistake as a leader, like big mistakes, then, you know, I think still on your journey, right? Um, so I think um, those leaders then and those mistakes have created a sense of humility. And when you see great leaders, they tend to have these, these common characteristics of tremendous humility in the face of what seemed to be tremendous accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they've had the humility to learn and grow from their experiences and recognize that it was not a linear path towards their purpose. And those tend to be the ones for me that are most inspiring. In some ways that I aspire to be um, grounded, right? Grounded, you know, like striving for purpose while grounded in reality, you know? And, and these leaders, when you, when you meet and experience them, you know, you're like, wow, there's something different about that person. And can I just dwell, delve a little bit deeper into that? And it's, it's fascinating that you talk about purpose and humility. Uh, because I think it's very, you know, it's, it's one, it's inspiring too. I think it, you know, it, it talks to what I believe too. Yeah. But when you look at the tech world, it seems that the world prizes being a jerk. There's no mm -hmm. other way to say it. Oh yeah, hundred percent. The best, the best entrepreneurs are what are people who went out and got things done and whatever else there is. And in some cases, there has been some comeuppance for the jerks, but in many cases, it seems that they still rule the top of the tech world. So is there something we're doing wrong out here in tech leadership? Um, well, first of all, I think that's just a reflection of the human spirit and the human experience. And um, the greatest leaders are not always the most celebrated. Very interesting. Could you elaborate on that? Um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know I, I, this is such a common example, but I have to use it like, you know, Gandhi, right? You know, um, you know, he, he just did things, you know, he just did things that he thought were right, Nelson Mandela. So you have these great, great inspiring leaders who just pursued their purpose um, and, have, and went through a lot, a lot, right, to basically get to. But they were not doing it because they were trying to get on the cover of like Forbes or, you know, tech or, you know, all these magazines, right? They did it because they believed in it. And as a result of it, the impact was pretty tremendous. That's very different. Like, so when I talk about great leaders, I'm talking about greatness, right? Not people who are necessarily successful today. There are lots of people who will be successful today by lying, cheating, and stealing. A ton. 
and they exist not just in the tech world, but in the business world in general, just in the, just in society, politics, the whole world, right? Yep. And so, it's, so I think greatness doesn't have to do with short-term success. I think the question is not about today's success because you know you can you can lie, cheat, and steal and be and make a ton of money. I can go rob a bank and be really wealthy, right? You know, right? So um, it's going to be the legacy that's left behind. So what legacy are these leaders? leaving so these tech leaders you know who are you know jerks right that is that what legacy will they leave after they are no longer in position will they be will they be remembered and if they are remembered how will they be remembered some very very powerful uh, learnings in what you just said out there and um, the truth is that um, i think um, you know, when we when we prize short term success, I think we tend to fall into these traps. And it's also complex. I mean, I don't think in some cases, many of the people who are uh, speaking perhaps a little bit too empathetically, some of the people who have displayed jerky behavior are also being driven to do that by the circumstances around them, by other bros, by, you know, by, yeah. by stake, other stakeholders in the system, etc. And that is a fairly complex topic and probably one that we should have a separate podcast about. Uh, but it's really been fascinating having you on the show. Uh, so, and so much that I think we talked about, you know, how you can apply science to the tech, how you may engage human beings through better behavior design. One of the things I found particularly fascinating is the fact that you said the driving factor for really great learning is actually the creator and and and, and what they bring to this, um, uh, what they bring to the show actually. And uh, Finally, I think where we ended with this whole idea that so much of the biases that we do is um, unconscious and people need to educate themselves. I mean, that's a, it's a simple thought, but it's really powerful. So, uh, Soyang, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And thank you for sharing all your, all your learnings on learning, on breaking <laughs> the bias, on leadership. Uh, really a pleasure having had you on the show. Suresh, thank you so much for being an inspiring leader and one of the inspiring tech leaders who walks the talk. And uh, this is such a great idea. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And to my viewers and listeners, thank you for listening to us today. Slaves to the Algo is available on YouTube, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. We release a new episode every week. If you really like this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Most importantly, slaves stay relevant because we are in the age of AI and we do not want to be slaves to any algorithm, whether human or machine. See you all next week. Thank you once again, Soya. Thank you.